Well, good morning, 9 a.m. How's everybody this morning? Good, good, good. Hey, before we get too comfortable this morning, would you do me a favor? Would you scoot in just a little bit? I love it when I suggest that and people just look at me like, no, I'm not going to do it. Could you, could you maybe scoot in? Because here's why. We've got a bunch of people standing in the back. They're looking for seats, and there are seats here in um, this auditorium. It's just that they're sort of interspersed. If you're in a big group standing in the back looking for um, a place for everybody to sit together, um, you may have to split up just a little bit. That's what happens when you have a 9 a.m. right after daylight savings time, right? Everybody's like, eh, I come to the 11, but what am I going to do? Sit around for a couple hours, might as well come to church. So anyway, thank you for being flexible. Thank you for being here this morning. We got a couple seats over here, a couple seats over here as well. Everybody good? Okay, I promise I won't make you move again at all the service so you can be comfortable. Because after all, that's what church is all about, right? Just being comfortable. No, said no one. Um, if you have a Bible, I would love for you to take it out. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, Ecclesiastes chapter 7. For those of you who have not gotten a chance to meet yet, my name is Josh Brooker. I'm the pastor of the Cannon County campus in beautiful Woodbury, Tennessee, just right down the road, Wood Vegas. If you've never been, it is the biggest city you will ever visit. No, not really. I am really, really happy to be here. I was on staff here a number of years ago, and so coming home, uh, to this campus is a bit like coming back to the high school you graduated from, right? So you, you just feel a little bit different, but it's so cool to see everybody. So awesome to see how we've grown as a church, new faces. I'm really excited to get to know some of you guys over the years. And so um, really, really happy to be back here. We have been in this book of Ecclesiastes along with uh, the Murfreesboro campus. We've been tracking right along with it. And, and if you haven't um, been with us and you haven't been in this study, first of all, thank you for being here. Um, but second of all, this is a very different book of the Bible. It's not like um, most other books that at least I, I spent time reading growing up in church. I don't think I ever heard one sermon on the book of Ecclesiastes growing up in church. Kid you not. Um, and, and the reason I think it's so different for us, and it's probably a little bit weird sometimes when we read it, um, because it comes up with all these weird ways of saying, hey, life is meaningless, and we're like, that doesn't sound like I have a plan for you, and all these, like, we're, we're like, this is really weird, and why is that? Well, Ecclesiastes is something called wisdom literature, and wisdom literature is designed to point us to the answers to the ultimate questions in life, and this one book, Ecclesiastes, is designed to point us to the ultimate question, and that is this, what is the meaning of life? Why am I here? What does all this mean? I didn't ask to be born. I didn't ask to be born into the home that I was born into or the family I was born into or this time in history or this nation I was born into, and yet I'm here. Is it completely random or does it mean something? And if it does mean something, what does it mean? And so the narrator of this book is a guy by the name of King Solomon. And King Solomon examines multiple places that humanity seeks to try to find meaning in life under the sun. That phrase under the sun essentially means life apart from God, life without God. If you're living life under the sun, you're not thinking about what's beyond the sun. You're thinking about here. You're thinking about now. And so he looks at all the different places that humanity tries to find meaning, be it in money and work and romance and sex and partying and hedonism. And he comes away saying it's ultimately meaningless. It doesn't do anything. He concludes that it's ultimately meaningless and what we need to truly enjoy this life is a relationship with God. And here's why that matters. Many of us that say that we're Christians, we will trust in Jesus for salvation, but we look to other things for satisfaction. We say, especially because this is the South, right? Jesus is the answer. Well, I know Jesus is the answer, but if you look at how our time is spent, where our money is spent, and where our affections are, we live as though we think money is the answer. Our career is the answer. 
Our family is the answer. Our pleasure and amusement, entertainment is the answer. And that's why Ecclesiastes matters because it causes us to confront the reality that if God is not at the center of our lives, our lives are absolutely meaningless. So we were with us last week in Ecclesiastes 6 that caused us to ask the big questions. Where do we find our value? How do we know that we're worth anything? What gives us worth? What gives us meaning? What gives us purpose? If we're not living a life with God in the center, we're just living life under the sun, it can be anything we want to give us worth, meaning, and purpose. And ultimately, those things fall short. But when we're living in relationship with God, it's God that gives us worth, it's God that gives us meaning, and it's God that gives us purpose. As we read Ecclesiastes 7 today, Solomon's going to kind of turn the corner and start getting intensely practical. He's going to speak of two ways to do life. One is the way of wisdom, and one is the way of foolishness. And we all have two choices for how we live this life. One is we can live for life under the sun. We can live for the here. We can live for the now. Solomon says that's foolishness. Or we can live for eternity. We can live with the reality that God is on the throne and someday we will have to give an account to him for the lives that we lived. And he says that's the life of wisdom. And here's why this matters. We all have a natural tendency to seek out what is easy, what is pleasurable, and what is safe. We want in our natural state that which feels comfortable and that which feels good and that's what tastes good, right? Um, I grew up in the great state of Georgia and um, in Georgia it doesn't really snow a lot. I don't know if you knew that or not. And so when it snows, two, two things happen. Number one, all of our milk and bread disappear from the shelves of our stores and we forget how to drive. And by the way, if, if you're from up north and right now there's this kind of snide, smug sense of superiority because you guys know how to drive in snow, right? First, like, I'm asking God to just break you of that and you can repent of that today in Jesus' name. And secondly, we know how to cook, so there you go. Um, so... It snowed once, and when I say snowed, this is spring of 1993, and some of you might remember the big storm of 1993, like five, six inches of snow. We didn't have power for a week. It was awesome when you were a kid, because all you got to do is like play in the snow and then come back and hang out with cousins and everybody, because we all piled at my grandparents' house because they had power and we didn't, and so it was awesome. It probably drove our parents crazy, but it, we loved it, right? And I remember that my cousins, were, we would all eat junk food, and one night they decided they were gonna make the ultimate milkshake. So they got into the ice cream, they got into the chocolate syrup, they got into the M&Ms, they got into the Reese's peanut butter cups, they actually got real sugar and vanilla extract and they were gonna make the ultimate milkshake. And they, they built it up and they, they served it up and they started pouring it out. And I remember going, trying to get my glass of the ultimate milkshake and my mom said, you're not gonna drink that. And I was like, but it's the ultimate milkshake. She said, no, that's gonna make you sick. And I'm like, it will not make me sick. That's crazy talk. She wouldn't let me drink it. And I thought, man, my mom is just so foolish. My mom does not know what's good for me or what's good for anybody. And I remember thinking that until about two in the morning, waking up to the sound of my cousins vomiting violently for, for a good hour, right? Because here's the thing. Even though something may feel good in a moment, that doesn't mean it's the best path for us. And we all have the natural tendency to pick what feels good in the moment, but what Solomon is saying is true godly wisdom is seeing the bigger picture and pursuing what is best. And guess what? What is best is not always what is easy. And so this is what he's gonna to talk to us about today. So if you have your Bible, Ecclesiastes chapter seven, starting in verse one, but um, first let's pray and then we'll dive into this. So, so pray with us together. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that it is a lamp to our feet. It's a light to our path. We thank you that, God, you've promised to be our shepherd and give us direction when we don't know where to go. And Lord, I'm praying specifically for people this morning that may feel directionless and lost. 
Maybe there's big decisions coming up that they need your wisdom in. Maybe there's relationships that they're dealing with right now they need your wisdom in. Lord, we confess this morning that we are not strong on our own. Help us not to be wise in our own eyes. Help us to not even lean on our own understanding, but help us to acknowledge you in all our ways. And Lord, you've promised if we do, you'll direct our paths. And so that's what we're asking for this morning. Direct our paths, oh Lord. Keep your hand on every church in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, God. We pray, Lord. Um, If they're preaching the gospel, they're preaching Jesus, you would grow them and you would unite your church under one name that is the name of Jesus. We love you, we praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Ecclesiastes chapter seven, starting in verse one. We'll just read the first 10 verses. This is what it says. A good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. So if you've not been with us, Solomon has spent the last six chapters of the book of Ecclesiastes detailing his quest to try to find life under the sun, meaning apart from God. And he's concluded that that you can't. It's vanity. If you don't have God in your life, if you're only living for what's here and what's now, you, you can't have a meaningful life. And so now near the end of his life, He sits down across the table from us, maybe he pours us a cup of coffee, and he gives us a teaching on what a life of substance and a life of wisdom actually looks like. And so he uses this word better in these first 10 verses again and again and again because he's contrasting two options, wisdom and foolishness. And he's gonna tell us that the better life to live is the life of wisdom rather than the life of foolishness. For a lot of us, when we hear those two words, wisdom and foolishness, we say, okay, so wisdom must be knowing a lot of facts, knowing a lot of things, and foolishness means you're just ignorant, you don't know anything. But but how many of you know you can be extremely intelligent and still be a fool? You, You can have advanced degrees and still be a fool, right? Wisdom and foolishness has less to do with what you know, and it has more to do with you acknowledging who God is. So what the Bible says um, about a fool is it says, a, a fool says in his heart, there is no God. So a fool is someone who sees things from a temporary, me-centered perspective. They are living life under the sun, and they react accordingly. There's a difference between a response and a reaction, right? You go to the doctor, they hit your knee, your reflex kicks out, you react, you don't even have to think about it. That's what a fool does. They're not responding according to an eternal worldview. They're reacting according to a me-centered, temporal worldview. This is what the Bible says is foolishness. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. But the Bible also says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so wisdom, biblically, is seeing things from an eternal, God-honoring perspective. It's when we're living for life beyond the sun. 
We know that this is not all that there is. It's not my best life now, it's my best life later. And so when I understand that there is a God in heaven on the throne, that I am living my life to please him, and I am living my life with that in mind, I can respond appropriately to that reality. And the Bible says that's wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so he begins by saying sorrow is better than laughter. Sorrow is better than laughter. For us as Americans, that doesn't make sense to us because we're addicted to entertainment and amusement and laughter, and we go, that doesn't make sense to me at all, but... Here's Solomon saying this to, to, to us. He, he says, a good name is better than precious ointment. Some, some of your Bible translations may say perfume or oil. Back in uh, biblical times, they would often take ointment or oil and they would lather themselves up. That's how they would smell good and smell nice. And so Solomon uses this word picture to tell us what truly matters is not how you smell. What truly matters is not how your hair looks. What truly matters is not your outfit. What truly matters is not that you have a six pack. What truly matters is your character. What, what good is it if you look amazing on the outside, but on the inside you are absurdly shallow? Says so it doesn't matter if you walk into a room and you dazzle everybody with how good you look on the outside. If when you leave, people go, man, that person is flaky, they're inconsistent, and they're narcissistic. He says that doesn't matter one bit. And then he says the day of death is better than the day of birth. When someone is born, that's a reason to celebrate for sure, right? But really, what are we celebrating? We're celebrating their potential. We're, we're celebrating the fact that they will be, hopefully, a potential blessing to our family, a blessing to our world, a blessing to our community. But the day of someone's death, people get an opportunity to reflect on the reality of the life that was actually lived. And so the day of one's death is actually better than the day of one's birth. Then he says this, he says, it's better to go to the house of mourning that's a funeral in the house of feasting. That's a party. Um, given the choice, I don't think any of us would rather go to a funeral than a dinner party, right? You got a choice, birthday party or a funeral visitation. Ah, I think I'll pick the funeral visitation, right? Nobody's gonna choose that. But he actually tells us that a funeral is better because it's a funeral when the living lay it to heart. What he's saying is this, funerals are wake-up calls. When you go to a funeral and you see a loved one in a casket and you see everyone around talking about the time they spent with that loved one, it causes us to reflect on our own lives. It causes us to reflect on the reality. Man, that could be me next week. And what are my friends and what is my family gonna say about my life and how I treated them and the legacy that I left? See, funerals are better because they remind us of the brevity and the fragility of life. And most people at parties aren't the least bit concerned with death. I don't think about that kind of thing. It's not why you go to a party. And then he says this, he says, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. He's not saying that a wise person is somehow morbidly obsessed with death, like right, they drive a hearse and sleep in a coffin, that's not what he's saying. He's just saying they, they understand the reality of death. Right, did you know that you're not promised the next five minutes? <laughs> you're not, man. You're not promised the next 10 seconds. You're not promised tomorrow. You're not promised a week from now. Death could happen at any time, and someone that's wise knows that, and they're familiar with that, and they live their lives in light of that, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. We don't use that word mirth a lot, but mirth essentially means entertainment and amusement. How many of you know as Americans we are obsessed with entertainment? Um, we will do things for entertainment we would never do for God. We'll go sit in a three and a half hour comic book movie 
and hold our bladders for the extra scene at the end, right? It's coming, here we go. But then five minutes into church, we're like, oh, this is boring, right? Wonder who the Titans are playing today, right? Because we're obsessed with entertainment. That's what we want. We want to be amused. We want to be entertained. We want to have a good time. And the Bible would say that's foolishness. It's not wrong to have a good time. It's not wrong to be amused or be entertained. But the reality is a foolish person, that's where their heart is. They're obsessed with it. And so as a result, they won't think about weighty things and they won't take life as seriously as they should. And if we're addicted to entertainment and amusement at the expense of serious things, the Bible looks at us and says, you're a fool. You're a fool. He says that a rebuke is better than praise. Um, I don't know anyone that has ever told me that they just love being rebuked, right? Just feels great. What's your hobby? Getting criticized. I love it, right? So a rebuke, even from somebody who's wise, it doesn't feel good. It, it, it never feels good, right? But much good can come out of it. Our natural tendency is to never wanna hear criticism, never wanna hear negative feedback, only want people telling us how awesome we are and how good of a job we've done in everything we do. But Solomon tells us that a rebuke from someone who is wise is better than someone singing our praises who might be a fool. You've gotta consider the source. Someone who's foolish gives you a praise, it might not mean anything. Why? Because they're foolish. If someone who's wise gives you a rebuke, it probably means a lot. Why? Because they're wise. And they most likely want what's best for you. And that's why they're giving you the rebuke, not because they just hate you. He says that um, the laughter of fools is, is like the crackling of thorns on a campfire. If you were to take dried out thorns and throw them on a campfire, what would happen is that you would hear a lot of noise at first and it would get really, 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 really loud, but it ultimately would not do much lasting good. It wouldn't keep that fire burning hot for a long time. There's actually a play on words in the original language. Uh, in Hebrew, the word pot is seer and thorns is serum. And what he's saying is this, the talk, the laughter, and the praise of a fool doesn't have any real value. They just talk because they wanna hear themselves talk. They just laugh loud because it makes them feel better and it makes them forget all those weighty things that they should actually be thinking about. So while it may feel better in a moment to have lots of praise, have someone laugh at all your jokes or someone tell you how awesome you are all the time. If that person is a fool, what Solomon is saying is it doesn't mean anything. It's like tinder or kindling that you throw on a hot fire and it makes a loud noise and then it goes away and it doesn't do any real lasting good. Then he says fulfillment is better than immediate gratification. Fulfillment is better than immediate gratification. There's an interesting verse in this passage. He says oppression drives the wise into madness Oppression drives the heart into madness and a bribe corrupts his heart. See, when oppression or injustice happens, even those of us who are wise, what happens is sometimes we want a quick and easy way out. It can drive you crazy, can't it? When you see something around you that's unjust or you see something around you where you're oppressed and you're the victim of it. And so when that happens to us, we want a quick and easy way out. So things like taking a bribe or taking a shortcut or cutting corners at our jobs that appears to be a quick way to get things done but when we do that, it turns a wise man into a fool and it encourages corruption. And so what Solomon is saying is it's better to wait and let God work those things out. You know, God is more capable of fighting your battles for you than you are. That, that there's no blessing in us trying to take a shortcut and trying to get things done easily. Like it's better to remember there's a God on the throne in heaven and he is making all things work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And so what we see too is, it goes along with the next verse. He says, if that's true, don't be quick in your spirit to become angry. 
Don't be quick in your spirit to become angry. If you read the book of Proverbs, you'll find that one of the primary marks of a fool that Solomon gives, a fool that's only living for what's here, what's now, what's temporary, is that they give full vent of their anger. What does that mean? You never have to guess when a fool is upset, right? They get upset about something and they explode. Everybody knows. You can't take them anywhere. You can't take them to a restaurant. You can't take them to a bank. You can't go on a flight with them. You can't take them to a family dinner. The littlest thing, set them off, right? And everybody knows it. And they're okay with that. Why? Because they're living for themselves and they're living for what's here and what's now. And it feels really, really good when you explode in a fit of anger when anger is under the surface, doesn't it? But the problem is, outbursts of anger only feel good for a moment. But the long-term effects of an outburst of anger are absolutely disastrous. An outburst of anger may feel good for a moment, but it could cost you your job. An outburst of anger may feel good for a moment, but it could get you arrested. An outburst of anger may feel good for a moment, but you could say things in that moment to your wife or to your children that you can never take back. And a fool doesn't think about that. They think about here, they think about now, they think about under the sun. See, it's not wrong for us to get angry. The Bible actually says you can be angry and not sin. But the difference that Solomon says is that anger lodges in the heart of a fool. It controls them. They don't control their anger. Their anger controls them. And while it may make us feel powerful and large and in charge to go around and intimidate everybody because we've got a temper, the Bible actually says if you have anger lodged in your heart, you're actually a fool. You're not living for eternity. Then, then he says something interesting. I love verse 10. Look at verse 10 for a second. He says, say not, why were the former days better than these? Anybody ever been to their high school reunion or hung out with friends from high school, right? You get a bunch of people talking about high school. And it just seems like when you think back on high school, it's always cooler to look back on it 15 years after the fact. And like you forget that at the time you had acne and you couldn't get a date and you had braces and like, you know, not that there's anything wrong with braces. I'm just going to keep talking because um, I'm going to get an angry email. Hey, mister, I have braces, you meanie. Okay, so anyway, like there's this thing that we do as humans. When life is difficult, when life is confusing, when life is painful, one way we escape is we, we long for the good old days, right? We ask, why aren't the days now as good as they used to be? And here's what Solomon says. He says, it's not from wisdom that you ask this. Don't you remember the same brokenness that you're living in now? existed back then. You just can't remember. When we long for the good old days, what we're really saying is, is, is we, 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 <laughs> they never existed. They're a combination of a bad memory and a good imagination. Yeah, maybe they did exist, but it was Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. After Genesis 3, no more good old days, right? Some of us go, I just want to go back to, you know, Opie and Andy and Barney, right? Okay, so the 1960s, so segregation, the Cold War, the Kennedy assassination, right? It's funny how we never remember those things. We just think of the good stuff. See, we can't go back in time. We can't skip over difficult seasons. Wisdom is living in the moment and relying on God's grace and God's wisdom to take each day as it comes and know that his grace is the same today as it was yesterday, as it will be in the future. You can clap for that. One person is over here. <laughs> so funny. One person's clapping. Everybody else is like, eh, I'm not going to clap for this guy. No, he's not Corey. Ecclesiastes, <laughs> verse 11, chapter 7. All right. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. 
And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. So if you haven't been with us, um, Solomon doesn't have really good things to say about living life apart from God. Living life under the sun, he kind of compares it to, to being on a treadmill, right? I don't think they had treadmills back in the day, but you ever seen somebody on a gym in a treadmill? They run really fast, they can run really hard, but ultimately they're going nowhere. That's what Solomon says, life under the sun is like. You can work really hard, you can get a bunch of money, you can get a bunch of stuff, and then you die. And it's pointless, and it's meaningless. But then we come into relationship with God, and he launches us beyond the sun, and we start seeing things from an eternal perspective. And once we get off that treadmill, we gain this ability to look at life in perspective and not get out of balance. See, when we have God in our lives, we have access to God's wisdom in our lives. It's not me that has to figure out where I'm going and what I'm doing. No, God is the one that's directing me. God is the one that's guiding me through his wisdom. And so we're able to accept and deal with all of the various experiences of life in a way that pleases him. That we begin to see things as they really are from an eternal perspective, not just from how they feel in the here and in the now. So Solomon talks about something he was very familiar with, and that is wealth. He was very, very wealthy, probably the wealthiest person on earth at the time. And what he says is this, real wealth is not just having money. Because you can have a lot of money, but lack wisdom and waste all of that wealth on useless things. You can lack wisdom and get a bunch of wealth and then find out that that wealth just makes you more empty and more dissatisfied. So what you need is not wealth, what you need is wisdom, and wisdom only comes from God. And when we have wisdom, wisdom protects and wisdom preserves. But God's wisdom is like a shelter to those who obey it, and it actually gives far greater protection than money. Some of us look to money to provide us security and protection, and we think, well, if I've got money, nothing bad will ever happen to me. And, and we look at history, and we see that stock markets can collapse. We look and see that houses can burn down. We look and see that people can embezzle. Jesus said, moth and rust corrupt, and thieves break in and steal. You are not 100% secure because of your money. Only a fool believes that they are. What you need is the protection from God, and his wisdom gives us that protection. It's not enough to just have knowledge either. Some of us think, I just learn a bunch of stuff and get advanced degrees and read a bunch of books. Well, listen, you, you can have knowledge but still be a fool. Knowledge isn't enough. We need wisdom to actually implement that knowledge into our lives. You can be very smart and still live a very foolish life. Why? Because you've not put that knowledge into practice in your life. Then he says something very interesting in verse 13. The first time I read this, I was a little confused. He said, consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? The reason that's confusing is because God doesn't really make anything crooked, does he? Um, does God make mistakes? No. 
But how many of you know from our vantage point, sometimes it feels like he does, <laughs> right? I, I know this is church and you, you think that you have to just you know, put on a face. You can, you can be real today, right? Um, sometimes it seems like the work of God in our lives is crooked because it doesn't make sense to us. And it seems completely wrong. And foolishness is when we look at something that God has done and we say, you got it wrong. And we think that somehow we can correct him. We think that somehow we can improve upon his work. But Solomon says, you can't. That's God in heaven. You're on earth. See, wisdom is resting in and trusting in his sovereignty, that his ways are not your ways, that he knows more than you know, that he sees more than you see, and he is working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That's wisdom. Foolishness is saying, no, God, you got it wrong, and I'm gonna try to fix what it is you got wrong. And then he says something very interesting in verse 14. I love this verse. He says, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, Consider, God has made the one as well as the other. Um, here's the reality. Some of our days will be really, really, really good and they'll be full of joy. You'll wake up and man, you'll just be in love with your spouse more that day than you were the day before. You'll wake up and man, you'll, you'll laugh so hard at something your sides will hurt. You'll wake up and man, your food just, just, it just turns out amazing and your coffee was brewed extra strong that morning. Everything just seems awesome in your life and you didn't ask for that. It just was given to you and you're like, wow, thank you, God. And then other days... It'll be marked by sadness and tears. You'll get a text message or a phone call that will change your life in an instant. Sadness, sorrow, misery, pain. And here's the crazy part about life. You can never guess which kind of day you're getting when you first wake up that morning. And if you don't have God in your life, it means absolutely nothing. You either get lucky or you get unlucky. But the perspective that Solomon gives us is this. God has given us a good day and he's given us a bad day. And wisdom gives us perspective so we're not discouraged when times get difficult because we say, I just got unlucky today. It's all meaningless. And we're also not arrogant when things are going well. That we receive blessings from God and we go, well, I guess I'm doing pretty good, right? I did all this for myself. And the reality is, no, we didn't. It was all given as a gift. See, we can't lose sight of the reality that God's redemptive plan is at work, even in difficult times. Solomon says he's made one as well as the other. He's still God on your worst day as he is on your best day. That's good news for somebody this morning. Then he says this in verses 15 through 18. He talks about um, seeing someone who's righteous and, and bad things happen to them and seeing someone who's wicked and good things happen to them. And when we see that, sometimes we get frustrated because we go, man, are this, do bad things happen to good people? And why are bad people getting blessed? That doesn't make sense to me. See, when we're not thinking of the bigger picture, it can get really discouraging to see wicked people prospering and righteous people suffering. But here's the thing. The wicked only appear to prosper if you take the short view of things. If you're living your life not thinking about the reality that there is a God who will judge all of humanity on the last day, you understand that no one's gonna get away with anything. So those who appear to be prospering in their wickedness, it's only for a little while. And, and verse 16 is a little bit confusing. Um, he says this, he says, don't be overly righteous. Some of us read that and we go, oh, that's good news. I think I'm gonna go drink after this. Awesome, right? He says, don't get too carried away, right? <laughs> Just obey in the Bible, right? So it seems like, as he says, don't be overly righteous, he's not telling us, he's telling us, don't get too carried away with the whole Christian thing, right? Like, you know, don't be, don't be crazy with it, right? Be a Christian, but don't be a Christian, right? Well, we have to like think about this um, 
and, and we have to think about it in the whole counsel of God's word, not just take one verse. And we also have to think about the original language. In Hebrew, that verb is reflexive. That means its action is turned back or reflected on the subject of the verb. If you failed high school English, your brain is probably hurting right now, so I'll keep going. Um, what he's saying is this. Don't claim to be righteous and don't claim to be wise. In other words, he's warning us against self-righteousness. He's warning us against the pride that comes with thinking we've arrived and we know it all. You know one of the ways we can know that somebody actually doesn't know anything at all? It's when they claim that they know everything there is to know. <laughs> when they walk in the room and they're the smartest person in the room and every topic you bring up, oh yeah, I've done that, yeah, okay, yeah, I've done that. I've been doing that for like 30 years, yeah, 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 yeah. And they, so they know everything about everything and there's like, you can't teach this person anything. The Bible would actually say that person is a fool. Because the more we know, the more we should realize there's a lot that we can't know and there's a lot that we don't know. And the same is true for righteousness. The more righteous we think we are, the more delusional we actually are and the less we understand the holiness of God. So don't claim to be righteous on your own. Don't claim to be wise on your own. So we're not to view ourselves as righteous apart from God, but we're also not to cave into worldliness because it looks easier. So how do we do this? How, how do we keep ourselves from pride? How do we stay motivated to stay away from wickedness? He's gonna end this section with the most powerful verse that if you put into your life, it will change everything about your life. Are you ready? Verse 18 says this, fear God. Fear God. The one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Where does real wisdom begin? It begins with the fear of the Lord. Where does real righteousness begin? It begins with the fear of the Lord. See, the fear of God keeps us from both wickedness and folly. When we actually understand the reality of God and we live our lives in light of that, it will change everything about our behavior. This is what he's getting at. Let's look at this last part. Look at verse 19. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than 10 rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say. Hey, church, let's read that again, shall we? <laughs> Do not take to heart all the things that people say. One more time, just for, just for fun. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. No, I haven't. Yes, you have. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all of these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made men upright, but they have sought out many schemes. So he says that wisdom gives us strength. Stronger than 10 rulers who are in a city. Stronger than 10 leaders of a government that have experience in the political realm is the wisdom of God. That someone who is wise fears God and therefore they don't fear anyone else and they don't fear anything else. 
But wisdom also recognizes that we're sinners. He says, surely there's not someone on earth that's righteous and never sins. That means you, that means me. That you're gonna sin, that I'm gonna sin, that we are sinners both by nature and choice and we're not righteous apart from God. See, true godliness is not puffing out our chest in pride. True godliness is bowing our head in humility and lowliness because the closer we get to God, the more we realize we are absolutely nothing without him. And someone that's lost sight of that is not godly. They're proud and they're foolish and they're delusional. Wisdom also gives us strength and perspective to handle what people say about us. It's so funny. He says in verse 21, do not take to heart all the things that people say. Don't take to heart all the things that people say. You know, right now, you're probably the topic of somebody's praise and flattery. Somebody right now is probably saying something good about you. Some of you think, wow, that's awesome, right? Well, here's the other hand. Somebody right now is probably gossiping about you. <laughs> right? So after this service, some of you will get in your car, and um, you'll, you'll, you'll drive home, and you'll go, I don't know if I really like that guy. That wasn't Corey. I didn't really agree with some of the things he said, right? He was a little much for me. I didn't really like his examples, the whole snow and the puking. I found that crass, right? And some of you will do that. And then others of you after service will come up and go, oh, my goodness, that was the best sermon I've ever heard, right? And here's the thing. Um, if I live for your applause and your flattery, I will be absolutely crushed by your criticism. The Bible says don't take to heart what people say because it's just words, man. It's just words. And, and a wise person understands that, that most of them don't really mean anything. Most of them are pointless and gossip actually is sinful. And, and if you tune in too close to what people are saying about you, you're gonna be crushed. He says, you'll hear your servant cursing you. It's going to crush you. And not only that, um, it can lead to great grief when we find out that we're the topic of gossip. But lest we look at that and say, all these people always talking bad about me, right? Don't get too judgmental because you've done it too. Right? No, this is church and you think you're not supposed to, like, no, you've done it. I've done it, right? We're human. We're not supposed to do it, but we've done it. And Solomon reminds us, don't, don't take to heart what people say about you. Use some wisdom. If you live for their applause, you will die by their criticism. And people are criticizing and praising you all at the same time, so do not take to heart what people say. Wisdom also allows us to be at peace with our own inability to grasp the meaning of all God is doing in the world. Solomon says that he searched for the reason. He searched for the scheme. He tried to find the answer to life, but he found no final answers to all his questions. You know what that tells us? The wiser a person is, the more comfortable they are saying I don't know. Or like Solomon, who can find it out? I don't think that's for me to know. There are some things this side of eternity I'm probably not going to know the answer to. And the closer we get to God and the more we find out, the more we realize we actually don't know as much as we thought we knew. This is what Solomon says. Wisdom also gives us the strength to know where we're weak and to recognize wickedness. But wickedness is not just out in the world out there. Wickedness is inside of us. See, um, let's talk about Solomon for a second. We love the guy. He's, he's, he's very wise. He's writing scripture. The Holy Spirit is inspiring him to write scripture. But let's just be honest. The brother had a bit of a problem, right? He had a vice. Um, at its best, it could be described as a love addiction. He was going from relationship to relationship. He'd fall in love with somebody. I feel all the butterflies, and it was great, and it was cool, and then he'd get tired of them and go to somebody else over and over and over and over again. At its worst, it could be described as a sex addiction, Right? Some of us think that's really judgmental, Josh. Why would you say that? Well, the brother had 700 wives and 300 concubines, right? Clearly an issue. And so this vice had been the thing that had led him astray from his God. If you read in the book of 1 Kings that it was his wives that led him into worship of false pagan gods. 
And so now at the end of his life, he, he reflects on his journey. Many theologians believe that Ecclesiastes is his repentance letter. He's coming back to the Lord and he's telling us what he learned through his journey of life. And he expresses remorse and regret by the fact that he'd been seduced by women whose hearts were snares and nets and their hands were fetters. It's this language of entrapment and seduction. And so he comes to this conclusion where we go, wow, tell us what you really think, Solomon. He says, well, the whole human race is bound by sin. Only one man in a thousand is wise, but not one woman. <laughs> it's it's kind of like, you know, the night before you get married, you run into your uncle. He's been divorced 10 times. He's on his eighth beer. And he's like, stay away from women. They ain't nothing but trouble, right? You go, I... I I think I know the problem. It's not with women. It's probably with you, right? So, so we got to be careful with this text because clearly what the Bible teaches is that women and men are both co-heirs of grace. If you agree, say amen. amen. The Bible teaches that men and women are both made in the image of God. Say amen. amen. They're equal. Uh, even Solomon, when he writes the book of Proverbs, speaks highly of women. You ever read Proverbs 31? He speaks of the virtuous woman. He says she's hard to find, but she's out there. Apparently he never found her, but she's out there, right? <laughs> he says her worth is like rubies. You don't find a ruby just anywhere, right? He speaks of women in Song of Solomon. So, so he's not saying that women are more foolish or more wicked than men. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that his vice and his addiction and his self-destructiveness kept him from finding what he was after, and he never personally found a woman who was righteous. The problem wasn't with women. The problem was with Solomon. Um, I would say it's probably hard to find a good church girl if when you meet her and you're like, hey, will you be my wife? And she's like, that sounds wonderful. Well, I've got like 700 other wives, but you can be my wife, right? It's kind of hard to talk a good church girl into that arrangement, so that's probably why I never found someone right. But, but he ends this chapter reminding us that although God made humanity upright, God made humanity without sin, God created humanity perfect, the problem is we've all gone astray and we've sought out many schemes. That's the problem with the brokenness inside of you. It's not because you need more money. It's because you've got sin and you need God's forgiveness. That's the problem with this world that we live in. It's not that we need a political leader to fix everything. It's that we have sin and we need a savior. That God made us upright, but we've gone astray and sought out our schemes. Solomon's particular flavor of going astray and seeking many schemes was a love and sex addiction. Unless we get too judgmental and say, well, that's Solomon, that's not my... Listen, anything, anything that leads you astray from God and causes you to try to find meaning and satisfaction apart from God is your scheme. And the end of that is not satisfaction and wholeness. The end of that is death and destruction and suffering and regret and remorse. And true wisdom sees that. True wisdom knows that. True wisdom is understanding I'm weak in this area. You know, everybody in here has a kryptonite. I don't know what yours is. I know what mine is. You have an area that you're weak. You have an area that if, if you give in to that, it will lead you down a path where it takes you further than you wanna go and it keeps you longer than you wanna stay. And real wisdom is knowing, no, I'm a sinner in need of God's grace. I'm not perfect. I need God's grace because I'm weak in this area. See, um, we're after the wrong things as human beings. A lot of us think that to fix our life, what we need is wealth. I need more money. Once I get this amount in retirement, once I get this income, once I get this amount in savings, that will fix me, that will give me security. I'll finally stop worrying about money when I get this amount in the bank. And the problem is, if we have wealth without God and his wisdom, that will only lead us to squander and misuse. 
The worst thing that could ever happen to you is for you to get wealth without God. Because if you got a lot of wealth without God, you would think that maybe you don't need God. And what good is it, Jesus said, to gain the whole world but to lose your own soul? What good is a huge bank account if it sends you straight to hell? Wealth without wisdom leads to squander and misuse. What you need is wisdom. What you need is God, not just wealth. Some of us think what I need is romance. What I need is a family. What I need is a spouse. He's out there, right? Mr. Right is out there. Someday my prince will come. Right? He's going to fix my life, right? All the brokenness, all the loneliness, all the emptiness. If I could just meet him. Here's the problem. Even if you could meet Mr. Right, even if you could meet Mrs. Right, even if you could meet that person that is perfect, if you don't know how to handle that relationship because you don't have God in your life and has wisdom in your life, that will lead to dysfunction and that will lead to brokenness. What you don't need is romance. There's nothing wrong with romance, nothing wrong with a marriage, nothing wrong with family, but family relationships without God and his wisdom only lead to dysfunction and brokenness. Some of us think it's success. If I could just get success, if I could just get achievement, if I could just get leadership, then I'll be happy. Then, then I'll have meaning, then I'll have value, then I'll have purpose. But listen, if you got those things but you did not have God and his wisdom that would lead to emptiness, you thought it would fix you and give you identity and it doesn't, at least to tyranny, where you wanna prove your identity is powerful and in control and you become the boss that everybody hates and nobody likes and everyone fears, or it leads to anarchy that everybody's looking to you to lead them but you don't know where to go because you yourself aren't being led by anyone but yourself because you don't have God in your life. What you need is God. What you need is his wisdom. But how do we get that? Well, this is what Solomon would write in Proverbs 9. He says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Here's the thing, if it was a magic pill that we were just laying down up front, hey, come take your magic pill and you'll have a better life. Um, this altar would be flooded by people wanting the magic pill, right? But it's not a magic pill. It's, it's, it's more like a marriage, right? It's more like you committing your heart and life to living in relationship with God and living in surrender to God because you realize he's more powerful than you are and you yourself are not God and you're not qualified to lead your life like he is. And that's why people don't flood the altar at our service. That's why people leave before we take communion. That's why people, to keep them in church, you gotta entertain them and keep them comfortable. You best not ask them to scoot in because mm, I'm gonna go to another church, right? <laughs> because for a lot of us, it's not about the fear of the Lord, it's about us. It's about us. The Bible says that's actually foolishness. So how do we fear God? How do we live in fear of the Lord? Well, the first thing we do is we know that God is not like you and he's not like me. The Bible says he's holy. He's holy. We don't know what that word means in our culture. A lot of us only use that word right before a cuss word and we think that's what that word means. But the Bible, when it talks about God's holiness, it means that God is different from you. He's not like you. He's not like me. He's separate from us. And guess what? You're not like him. He is perfect in his goodness. He's perfect in his love. He's perfect in his wisdom. He's perfect in his justice. And guess what? You and I are not. We're broken. We're broken. And yet the audacity of the human condition is we look at a God that the Bible says is infinitely holy and dwells in inapproachable light, and we have the audacity to say, I think I'm a pretty good guy. But the Bible would look at us and say, your righteousness is like filthy rags in the sight of God's perfection. You're not holy on your own. 
I'm not holy on my own. So how do we live in relationship with God? Well, really fearing the Lord is understanding that the cross is our only hope. The point of this entire exercise, if you're new here and you're trying to figure out what this Jesus thing is about, it's not about your weekend activity, it's not about your beverage choice, and it's not about how you vote. Sorry, but some of you think that, but that's not it. It's about what Jesus has done for us on that cross. You cannot make yourself holy. You cannot make yourself righteous. There is nothing you can do to pay the sin debt that you have. But God in his mercy, this God that dwells in inapproachable light, stepped off his throne, took on flesh, and died on a Roman cross for you and for me. The Bible says he became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. That means every lie you've ever told. That means every piece of gossip that you've ever said, that means every filthy thought and every filthy act you've ever done. Jesus was paying for that in full on the cross as he stretched out his arms and his hands for you and for me. This holy God is not just perfect in his judgment, he's also perfect in his love. And the only hope that we have in this life to be in relationship with him is not in performance, it's not in church attendance, it's in the cross. And someone that fears the Lord knows that. And the only response that makes sense when we know that God is holy and we know what he's done for us on the cross is this, it's surrender. It's we stop arguing with him. It's when we hear his word, we stop going, well, okay, that's good for some people, but I don't know if I'm all in this. And it's not going halfway in, halfway out. No, it's saying, I'm done trying to be the Lord of my own life. It's not working. And some of you, the reason you're here deep down, and you don't actually know that, but the reason you're here deep down is because you're exhausted. Because it's really, really exhausting work trying to be the God of your own life. But you're still trying, and you've not yet surrendered. But the only response that makes sense when we understand what God has done for us on the cross is full, complete, 100% surrender where we wave the white flag over our lives and say, I'm done. I don't know what's best for me. You do. And we choose to follow him in obedience. Can I tell you, that's the stumbling block of the gospel for the American church that some of us would rather not hear. <laughs> we want the shamwow gospel, right? The quick and easy gospel. Take the pill, pray the prayer, check the box, eat a Chick-fil-A, listen to Christian radio, that's it, right? But a relationship is what God offers you. A relationship is what he offers you. He says, if you want to have my wisdom, you want to have me as your shepherd and your guide, starts with you understanding who I am. Would you pray with me this morning? Listen, I don't know most of you in the room. Um, I'm a guest this morning. I don't know your story. I don't know what you're going through in your life, but I know that the Holy Spirit of the living God does. Jesus made a promise where two or three are gathered together in his name. There he would be also. So we as Christians literally believe that the spirit of the living God is right here, right now in this room. He knows you. He knows if yesterday was the worst day of your life. He knows the burdens you're carrying. He knows those things that feel way too big for you and you just go, man, I, I can't handle this. And he's saying to you this morning, yeah, but I can. He's saying to you this morning, son, daughter, that's too big for you to carry. You need my wisdom. 
Won't you let me be God? So Lord, we pray all across this room you would give us the faith to believe that you can be trusted with our biggest burdens. You can be trusted with our biggest questions. Lord, when things that you've done look crooked in our lives and we go, God, I don't understand what you're doing. God, give us the wisdom to know that there's no way we can correct you or we can change what it is you've done. Lord, you are God, not us. We pray that our response this morning is surrender and obedience and trust in your goodness and trust in your greatness. Guys, all across the room this morning, there's communion. Communion is given as a reminder each week of what Jesus has done on you on the cross. That he became sin who knew no sin so that you might become the righteousness of God. We wanna ask if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, that you've repented of your sin and you're not walking in unrepentant sin. You're welcome to take that communion, bring it back to your seat, and observe that communion in the stillness of this moment, reflecting on the reality of what Jesus has done for you. But I just wanna say this one thing to you. If all you wanna do is just get out of here, man, go ahead and go. This is not a religious exercise that we do because it makes us feel better about ourselves. We literally believe that the spirit of the living God is right here in the room this morning, and we wanna honor him. And if you don't wanna honor him, that's fine, but, but just, just be respectful and you can go. There'll be people up here to my right and your left. They would love to pray with you. We have over here Pastor Mike. If you have questions about this, maybe you've never heard any of these things before and you're thinking, what, what is this about? Come talk with Mike. He'd love to chat with you and talk with you about what it means to follow Jesus or any questions you may have. And guys, let's just spend some time this morning reflecting on the reality of God. He's holy. He died on a cross for you. And the only response that makes sense if you really understand that, is surrender and obedience. God, we need your wisdom and we need you in our lives. Show us what that means. Show us what that looks like to live a life that pleases you. We praise you and we bless you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys. You're welcome to help yourself to communion or come up and get prayer.